Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Candela Marini, your host, and today we're talking with Joao Costa Vargas about his book, The Denial of Anti-Blackness, Multiracial Redemption and Black Suffering, published by University of Minnesota Press in 2018. So welcome, Joao Costa Vargas, and thank you so much for accepting our invitation and being here with us today. Thank you for having me. So before we start, I just wanted to inform our listeners that the denial of anti-blackness is actually available for free until the end of the summer. Uh, you just need to go to the University of Minnesota Press website, as and there you'll find it as part of a reading list about racial justice uh, that they have made available now. Um, so Joe, you're currently a professor of anthropology at the University of California, Riverside, and uh, you have a long list of publications, including Catching Hell in the City of Angels, Never Meant to Survive, State of White Supremacy, and now The Denial of Anti-Blackness. Um, and as you show in the book, your work is the result of life experiences and a lot of collaborative international projects, working with groups in Brazil and here in the United States and California and Texas. Um, could you first tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you start working with all these different groups and locations? Yes, uh, I'm, I'm originally from Brazil, and I came to the U.S. in 94 to do uh, graduate work at the um, University of California at San Diego. And I heard... From, from friends of mine in San Diego that there was an activist in California that had recently been to Brazil. So that together with my interest in the uprisings of 1992, to me, from, from a Brazilian standpoint, that was a, a very appealing and puzzling facts. So why would people revolt in South Central LA in 1992? And so that fact together with um, the information that there was an activist in, in LA that, that had been to Brazil recently made me go to California and meet this person. And he turned out to be Michael Zinzin, a Black Panther Party member who had been in fact, in Brazil the, the year prior to that in 1993. And that's how I started a long collaboration with not only Michael Zinzen, but the Coalition Against Police Abuse in LA for the next decade, decade and, and three years. So Michael Zinzen passed in, 19, um, in 2006. So between 1993 and 2006, I was pretty much collaborating with him, and I moved to to South Central LA in 1995 to continue that work, and that's where the book "Catching Hell in the City of Angels" comes from. It's a uh, it's based on that experience, and interestingly, I began work with Black activists in Brazil around 2001 because of the work in South Central LA. So the, these Panthers 
and former gang members and the coalition in, and the community in support of the gang truce, which was another organization we can talk about later. When they went to Rio in 1993, they established a series of political connections. And it's through those connections that I made myself back to Brazil in 2001 to work with the Movimento Popular de Favelas, Favelas Popular Movement. And we can talk about that later in, in the interview if you want. So that's that's the uh, the short version of a very long story that I tried to address in in the books you mentioned. And um, in this book, you say so you, you study uh, the black experience in the U.S. and Brazil, and you say that you don't want to do a it's not a comparative study, but a relational study or perspective have you had this uh, perspective all throughout your work or is it something new and what do you mean what, what would be the difference between a comparative and a relational perspective between the u.s and the brazilian experiences yeah like most um, like most brazilians we are taught to understand the brazilian context as unique in the same way that in the U.S. later I found out that is also the case. In other words, social relations and racial relations in Brazil are so unique and they are so particular to the context that comparisons with places like the U.S. or South Africa will not hold water. They, they will not, they, they will not uh, resist close scrutiny. And what I very soon realized, precisely because of this transnational activist work, was that even though these contexts, and I'm talking about Brazil and the U.S., they do have specific manifestations of social interactions, how we talk about race, and how we, we imagine these different formations of society, they at the end of the day, have the same roots that generates these social relations. And the root here is slavery and blackness more specifically. So even though Brazil and the U.S. and South Africa and other countries on the surface may look different, they, in fact, have very similar historical developments that lead to social formations whose core is the objection of black people, the objectification, the dehumanization, and the hatred of black folks. And that is common in the U.S., in Brazil, in South Africa, and other places. So that's what I mean by a, a, an analysis that's relational, is an analysis that recognizes what I just mentioned. So rather than stay with the surface of social facts, a relational analysis recognizes this common historical development and the centrality of slavery and anti-blackness in these different formations of sociability and management of resources. And uh, would you extend uh, this a foundational anti-blackness to other countries in this uh, hemisphere, in the Western hemisphere? 
I would I would make the claim that this is a worldwide phenomenon. So right now, as we speak, I'm finishing up a book with a colleague of mine from the University of Massachusetts, a sociologist, Dr. Munki Jung. And what we do in that collection of essays is to show how anti-blackness is, in fact, widespread in different countries, different states. So from Korea to Haiti to France to South Africa to Brazil to different times and different spaces, anti-blackness is the algorithm that explains much of modern sociability. So I would say it's a, it's a planetary phenomenon. In, in the preface of your book, you, you express quite a frustration with the presences of Obama and uh, here in the U.S. and Lula in Brazil mm-hmm. uh, in their failure to create a structural change, as you analyze later in the book. And you're also honest about your own intellectual changes and noticing how you yourself in previous work use the people of color framework that you now uh, criticize. Do you remember when it was that you started thinking um, that something wasn't right in this progressive version of multiracial alliances? Was it with the presidencies of Obama and Lula? Or was it before? I think it was, a, it was a long process. And I think if you speak with most black activists that find themselves in multiracial formation, the kinds of frustrations that I speak about are quite common. I think um, there's not a specific moment, but rather it's an accumulation and an, a, a lifelong experience of witnessing how black experiences become diluted and eventually pulled to the side within these kinds of multiracial formations. So be it in efforts uh, against police brutality, efforts against AIDS, HIV, domestic violence, exposure to environmental toxins, over and over, at least in my experience, what I witnessed was this on the one hand, acknowledgement of black specific experiences, but on the other, a dynamic that ended up pushing to the side and disavowing these very same specificities. And a combination of that finding, it's very interesting, happened when after Michael Zinzin's passing in 2006, I immerse myself in the papers of the Coalition Against Police Abuse, which now are housed at the Southern California Library, which is run by uh, Michelle Wesling and by uh, Yusuf Omowale. And they were able to secure most of the Coalition Against Police Abuse papers. And looking at those starting in 20. 12, if I'm not mistaken, looking at those, I realized what a struggle and how difficult it was for Black activists, especially these Black Panthers, to lead and to be part of these multiracial formations. So, for example, Michael Zinzun, even though he was a 
he was somebody very interested in studying anti-black genocide in the U.S. and was part of the United, the National United Black Front, which denied, uh, which denounced anti-black genocide to the U.S. government. And even though he had this lifelong interest in genocide, he could never utilize the concept in his political blocks. And that, to me, is an indication of how the, these political blocks, multiracial constituency prevented him from stressing these very specific black experiences. So to answer your question, I, I don't think there's a moment, but it's, it's an accumulation of insights over time that gained a, an archival basis when I started studying the Coalition Against Police Abuse papers. And I think I, this is a related question. You, in your book, you, you rarely use the term racism. Uh, so what would be the difference between racism and anti-blackness? Yeah, I think that that's a good question. I, I, I hope I haven't used it at all. <laughs> I, I, tried I think to... it was it once or twice. I was looking for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's an interesting question. There was a conscious effort not to use it. And, and here is why. Um, and that's also in this next book that I mentioned to you, this, this, collect, this um, collection of essays I'm organizing with Dr. Jung. And racism, I see the concept as relating to white supremacy. So the the, the analysis and the concept of racism makes sense within a framework that sees white supremacy as affecting differently racialized and gendered and sexualized groups differently yet in related manners. In other words, white supremacy from the perspective of racism and anti-racism, dehumanizes and excludes differently racialized groups in ways that are ultimately connected to how whiteness and maleness and heteronormativity and property is valued to the detriment of all the other groups that cannot match those requirements, all the groups that are devoid or excluded from these realms of privilege. So that's racism and white supremacy. In the world of anti-blackness, what I try to argue for is that the experience of black people is not in any way comparable or relatable to those of other non-white, non-black people. So there's something specific about black, black people's experience that the concept of racism is not able to grasp. So yes, black folks are exploited, black folks are 
forced into segregated areas that put them in contact with environmental toxins. And these facts may lead one to think that there are similarities between Black people's experience but and non-Black people's experience. But what is specific about Black people's experience is that their vulnerability to death and early death by preventable causes is always different and singular. And hence the need to come to terms with that specificity and hence the need to assert anti-Blackness as a series of phenomena that are distinct than those that affect non-white, non-Black people. Would you say that in racism, power is understood in, in terms of their distance from whiteness, whereas in anti-blackness, uh, power is, is measured in their distance from blackness? Yes, I think that that's one way to think about it. I, I would say that in, in the world of racism, the division that we make analytically and, and politically is between whites and non-whites. Mm. Whereas in the world of anti-blackness, the division that makes sense is between blacks and non-blacks. So in the world of racism, degrees of humanity are of a lesser nature, but still widespread among the non-whites, whereas in the world of anti-blackness, degrees of humanity are common to all non-blacks, but they are not present as far as black people are perceived by society at large. So yes, one way to think about it is, is about power, but it's, it's a much broader phenomenon. I, I want to suggest that when we talk about anti-blackness, we are talking about the expulsion of black people from the human family in ways that's not in ways that's that's not common to other non-white groups. So there's there's an interesting study. There, there are many others, but one that comes to mind is a a um, study by George Yancey, not the philosopher, the the sociologist. And using the, the, the Lilly survey, I think that that survey included over 100,000 people interviewed more than once. And one of the very interesting findings there is that, um, is that among Latinx people and Asians, as you said earlier, the, the big decisions in life are not about trying to get closer to whiteness, but rather the big decisions in life, and by this I mean uh, where do you want to live, with whom you want to have a relationship with, what kinds of schools you choose for your kids, those big decisions are made regarding the distance one is able to establish from Black people. So that's, 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 an, that's a very important, it's a subtle but very important distinction. So it's not about 
going to the white neighborhoods or the white schools, but rather it's about making sure that you are as far away as possible from black people. Hmm. Let's go to some of the cases you, you analyze in your book. Uh, the first part of your book you dedicate to um, the dynamics of youth incarceration in Austin, mm -hmm. and you trace there the racial disparities in the mechanics of the juvenile criminal justice. And first you start analyzing the relationship between residential segregation and the public school and the juvenile justice system. What, what did you find there? Yeah, that that um, that experience, I, I found it to be quite revealing of the dynamics of anti-blackness. Very simply, the, um, the situation that called my attention was within the juvenile prison. So I worked there for about five years with, with colleagues who were part of an organization called Save Our Youth. And in a juvenile prison, there was a numeric majority of Latinx kids, Latinx boys and girls, and a numeric minority of black and white kids. So on the surface, it looked like a Latinx-dominated environment. It was only later when I looked at the numbers that I realized that that numeric dominance was, was in fact deceiving because even though Latinx kids were the numeric majority in terms of their proportion vis-a-vis -vis the general population, they more or less reflected their proportion in the Texas juvenile population, which was not the case for black kids. So in other words, black kids were far more overrepresented in those environments than Latinx kids. So that's one aspect of that environment. The other aspect of that environment is that I honestly thought that because those kids would be confined to the same space and the same protocols, that they would develop some sort of recognition, and that rarely happened rarely happen. In fact, the, the pattern within the juvenile prison was of distance and non-recognition. And the what, third what do you mean with recognition and, recognition and non-recognition? Recognition, uh, recognition as, as far as um, getting along with each other, recognizing that they share similar experiences, that they are under the same protocols of confinement, of dehumanization, and that rarely happened. During my five years there, the Black-Latinx interactions were the exception rather than the norm. So that was also very telling. And that So th those were two characteristics of that environment. The third characteristic, which was a, a more sociological aspect of it, was, is the following. When I looked into the, the numbers regarding forms of punishment and how long kids stayed in those environments, it became quite apparent that for black kids differently, completely differently than what happened to 
Latinx kids and white kids, the, the longer the black kids stayed in juvenile confinement, the more severely they were punished and the more overrepresented they became in the types of punishment that were given to those kids. So that what I'm talking about is, is this. Um, black kids were punished more frequently, spent more time in juvenile confinement than non-black kids, and ultimately were criminalized as adults, which is the worst form of punishment within those, those institutions, than Latinx kids and white kids. For Latinx kids and white kids, that their experience in those environments was actually the opposite. The more severe the forms of punishment, the less represented Latinx kids and white kids were. So, for example, for black kids, the, they were the most overrepresented in the worst form of punishment in the juvenile criminal justice system, which is being criminalized as an adult and being sent to a, an adult facility. For white kids and for Latinx kids, they were the least represented in those instances. So that's very glaring. And in the book, I show that there's a, there's a, a capillarity to these processes that make Black kids' experiences in those environments very unique and sets them apart from all the other kids. So that, that was the major finding in the juvenile um, prison that that I um, that I was a part of for, for five years. And then you, you also participated in a series of writing workshops uh, right. that you conducted, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what did you learn with these writing workshops? In the, in the, the, the writing workshops, the, those were the, the writing workshops were an idea that Raul Salinas came up with, and that's something that he had developed over 20 years in Texas high schools, and eventually he brought that to juvenile prisons. And what we learned from that is that kids have a great necessity to express their experiences and connect their experiences to their present and to their past, and that when given tools creative tools, poetry, music, books, and analysis, they use those as ways to reconnect themselves to their communities and to their communities' past, and they become very sharp in expressing the types of experiences and oppression that they, that they go through in those kinds of environments. So one thing that we we're all very impressed by is how the kids are, are quick to connect the dots between their community's experiences and their individual experiences and how they become empowered by this knowledge and by being in community and by 
being recognized by their peers and by their instructors. So it was a it was a, it was a tough experience because you are dealing with kids that are incarcerated and you see them in shackles and you see them abused and you see them depressed and you see them acting up. It, it, it really does not make, needless to say, makes no sense to have kids incarcerated in that way. And yet they are kids that are learning about the world and they are eager to learn about the world, the world and they speak truth to power very quickly and very effectively. So th- that, that was one of the, the main lessons from, from that experience. Um, it is worth mentioning that there, there were actually two books published out of their uh, work, the poems they wrote during the writing workshops. One mm-hmm. was the, the, Does Heaven Have a Ghetto? And I Come From a Teardrop. Uh, did you participate? Did you take care of, of publishing this work? Or Yeah, th- those two, they, they were chapbooks. I think there's a third one. And that was part of the Save Our Youth effort. That was part okay. of uh, the Red Salmon Arts Organization from Austin, Texas, and also the Resistenza Bookstore. The, so these these three organizations and the folks that were part of it were all invested in that effort. And needless to say, because we were working in the environment, all of this had to be had to be uh, analyzed and vetted by the prison itself. So it's there's a there's a there's an interesting twist there. So we. At the end of the day, we, we were not able to publish anything that did not meet the standards of the, the prison protocols. And you, you also talking about that, you talk a lot about the dynamics between the, the, the children and the staff members, right? And right. how the members themselves, their attitudes change towards the workshop and, and the kids and could you talk more about that? Yeah, I think one of um, one of the findings in, in that study is, is is the following. Even though that those those types of institutions, prisons in general, ju- juvenile prisons in particular, are deeply dehumanizing, and the staff participate in their as part of their job description. As individuals, every now and then, they would realize and come to terms with not only what was going on inside those those environments, but they would also recognize the effort that we were that our group, Save Our Youth, was putting into being there for those kids. So, being there for those kids was was not only providing music and providing poetry and providing these insights into that condition, but above all was being there as adults supporting those kids. That was super important. And many of the, those staffs had the, the, the same idea. They had the same, the same impulse to be there for those kids. They wanted to help them. They wanted to make them integrated citizens, they had all the best intentions. 
So as I mentioned in the book, some of those staffs over the year, even though they, at first they hated us, <laughs> even <laughs> though they, they ended up participating in the workshops and they ended up helping us, which was, which was really, really interesting and, and quite uh, revealing. But that does not diminish in any way the dehumanizing aspect of the institution. So yes, there were many individuals within that institution that was well-intentioned, I would say even the majority of those individuals who cared for the kids and showed compassion and showed love. But at the end of the day, they were part of an institution whose function was to make those kids suffer and make those kids uh, feel like they are less than adequate and sever them from their communities and from their sociability. So there's that tension that I try to to describe in in the chapters around uh, the juvenile facility. And the tension was also present, uh, I think you wrote, like in the workshops themselves, right? Whether the workshops weren't being part of the system while yeah, even being well-intentioned. Yeah, absolutely. So that's, that's something that all of us who work in those environments will will have to deal with. Um, as well-intentioned as we were, the fact is that all of us facilitators had to go through a training by the prison. So we were, I think my training lasted a week on do's and don'ts and protocols you have to follow and those kinds of things. So you become, in many ways, yet another cog in the machine that's that's killing those those kids basically uh, you are yet another service provider you are yet another set of protocols that these kids have to follow so it, it took a long time and and i won't claim that we were successful every time but it took a long time to gain the the trust of those kids and if I'm not mistaken, our group was one of the few, if not the only one, that was not paid by the, the city, by the prison, to do our workshops. So that that also is very revealing of how those, those uh, institutions of confinement work. There, there's a huge industry, and I think that's quite an appropriate work. There's, there's a huge industry of nonprofit organizations that actually profit from working with kids and with the the prison industrial complex more generally. Mm. Um, then in, in the second part of the book, you move to Brazil, um, which, by the way, you call Brazil and the United States an empire state. Right. So maybe before going to the Brazilian case, could you explain why you use this term instead of nation state? And would you apply it to all countries? Should we be talking about empire states instead of nation states? Mm -hmm. that, that's a term, uh, again, that comes from uh, my colleague, uh, Munki Jung. Uh, that's mm -hmm. in his book, Beneath um, the Surface of uh, White Supremacy, a 2015 publication. And there he defines empire state as those formations that are sets to constantly 
not only expand their geographical borders, but also expand their zones of influence. So in the U.S., that phenomenon is, is more than obvious. In Brazil, it may cause some concern when we apply that to Brazil. But if we think about the ways in which Brazil over time has annexed territory around its borders, more recently, the role that Brazil played in the Haitian occupation, and more broadly, even during the Lula's administration, how the how the, the, the Brazilian elites had no qualms in asserting this expansionist drive towards market, towards political influence. They wanted to be part of the NATO Security Council. There's, there are all kinds of facts that I could list here that would support this notion of Brazil being an empire state rather than a nation state. Then you analyzed the 2013 street protests. Mm -hmm. um, could you give us some context of what were these protests and uh, whether they included a, a recognition of black suffering? Yeah, that, that's a... Um, the, the 2013 protests, the way that I was trying to make sense of, of them was by connecting that moment to previous similar moments of mass protest. So I'm talking about mass protest. That's very different than what happens almost on a, on a daily basis in Brazil when a child, a woman, a trans person gets killed or abused by the police and there's an immediate local protest. Those happens all the time, all the time. What I'm trying to reflect on is this other phenomenon, these mass protests, the 2013 mass protests, the 1992 uh, impeachment protest against Collard that eventually led to, to, his, to, his, um, to his dismissal from government, and the Gireta Ja protests in 1989, if I'm not mistaken, and what were the commonalities in those moments? So that, that, there were a few commonalities. One of them is that Sao Paulo was, was ground zero for what ended up happening throughout the country. The other commonality was that they tended to take place in central public areas, central public areas. And the third component was very glaring was the absence of black people as black folks in those spaces. So you look at the Gireta Ja uh, protests and it was mostly intellectuals, artists. It was the, the, the labor organizations of Sao Paulo, which are still and were then mostly non-black folks. And the same thing happened again in 2013, at least from what I gathered in Sao Paulo and Rio. So those are the two places that I, I focus the most. And in those two places, again, the, the, the patterns were repeated. They took place in central areas 
of these two main cities in Brazil, they were peopled mostly by non-blacks. And both of them revealed this pattern, which is quite controversial when you say this in Brazil, this pattern that makes it so that the public spaces are not seen by black folks. Those traditional public spaces are not seen by black folks as the most conductive, the most effective, and the most inviting for public political protest. So, of course, black people were there. If you look at the photographs, I was in those protests in Rio when they happened in the central area, in Avenida Rio Branco and and, uh, Candelaria. So I I saw that with my own eyes. So of course there were black folks there, but not as black people per se. They were not organizing as part of black collectives. There were black workers, there were black students, but not as people who were part of black collectives. So the question that immediately arises, so why is that the case? Why is it that those those historical, traditional, public political spaces seem to be not inviting for Black collectives to be protesting in. And one of, there are many answers to that. So one of them is, as you mentioned earlier, is uh, the, the patterns of residential segregation. So for Black folks to get to those central areas. It takes hours by public transportation, both Rio and um, and Sao Paulo, and the same is true for Salvador and Recife. All these major Brazilian cities are structured according to the same pattern. So the more privileged areas are the more central areas, which means that Black folks live far away. So that's one of them. The, the most fundamental aspect of, of those phenomena, though, is this. The, the hypothesis that I raise is that those spaces are less conductive for Black protests because Black folks know that their presence in those places will be met with a different kind of violence. So whereas non-Black people can protest and the police will deal with them in ways that will cause outrage, that will cause scandal, the same is not true for black people. So the the analysis that I'm making there is one that suggests that these public spaces in particular and civil society more generally are seen by black people as zones of war, as warfare, and that may explain some of the hesitancy in participating in these mass movements. Again, this is not to say that Black folks are not organizing at a local level that are not organizing, often led by Black women in different neighborhoods and in different historical moments, but in those particular events, those mass protests, Something else was going on that made it so that black presence was not evident. The other aspect of all of this, of course, is the fact that the 2013 protests were taking place 
during the Workers' Party administration. And the Workers' Party administration, with all its problems, represented this unique moment when Black people finally were experiencing a modicum of economic improvement. They were experiencing this unprecedented access to credit, to first-time home ownership. They were able to travel. So in so that, that's a very unique, very special moment. So in black people's mind, why would they protest against a government that all things considered was the, the one that was responsible for their relative improvement, re- relative social economic improvement? So there's that going on too. And against this political background, you didn't analyze the... Uh, the killing of a black construction worker, Amarillo Chisusa, by the police uh, in Rio de Janeiro. And Mm -hmm. that was part of one of these uh, attempts of change from the government, right? A change change in the security forces and their relationship with black Brazilians. Um, What was the reaction to these new kind of pacifying forces and with the people living in the favelas? Uh, and the security forces themselves, and then Brazilian society at large. And would you say that the killing of Amarillo is a reflection of their failure? Yeah, that that's such a um, complicated question to uh, to answer it simply. The the pacifying police, when it was first instituted in two thousand and eight, was seen as the final solution to the favela problem. That in itself reveals a huge problem. And even though there were some improvements at first, so I need to stress that there were some improvements of stress on the sum and at first, so there was a momentary localized improvement, especially in homicide rates. So there was undisputably an improvement there, basically because those police officers who were part of the pacifying, the new pacifying police, were trained to appease rather than repress. They had a little bit of human rights training. The whole thing was a joke, but there was that veneer. And that made it so that at first, they were really careful about how they would deal with conflicts inside those communities. On top of that, there was an, an un, that, that, that story needs to be written too, an unprecedented support for those policies across the political spectrum, left and right, and intellectuals and politicians, everyone was on board with the, that model. And it seemed to be the right thing to do, and it would finally resolve not only the violence in Brazilian favelas, but also the violence that it was assumed originated in those places. And of course, when we talk about 2008, we are talking about the period prior to Brazil becoming this major player on the world stage. So there's a, there's a, Pan-American games that happens in 2013. There are are mega sports events that will take place in Rio. So that's all in preparation for that. 
the World Cup. And, and then there's the World Cup and then there's the Olympics. But prior to that, there's the, the Pan American Games. So there was, there was a project of social management and social pacification that had in, at its core the socially accepted need to figure out what to do with black people. That's, that's the, the crux of the issue. So nobody said that. So the the the, um, the categories that were utilized were favelas and the the criminal elements that come from those places, etc. So it wasn't no nobody's talking about the danger that young black people represent. So that's the context in which the pacifying police is put into place, and it very soon became apparent that first of all the improvements were going to be temporary. And they were going to be temporary because one of the first effects of the pacifying police was that the favelas were open to capitalistic transactions, to the laissez-faire environment. So favelas in the south zone of Rio, for example, that previously had been seen as dangerous places all of a sudden become areas of high real estate speculation. So tourists start coming in and long-time residents see a unique opportunity to sell their houses and they get pushed further into the outskirts of Rio. So it was for many residents of those communities, it was evident that the pacifying police was going to hold as long as there was an interest in that state of affairs. Meaning, many residents that I spoke with from the beginning were very well aware that as soon as those mega sports events ended, it would be the end of that special period. And that's exactly what happened. So the death of Amarildo is pretty much the beginning of the end of that experiment. So even though the residents of the favela were denouncing abuse by the pacifying police from the beginning, those voices were were muted due to the generalized optimism and due to the fact that there was a lot of support, including from people of the, the favelas for these new for, for these new measures. But with the death of Amarildo and others, it became apparent that this was a failed experiment and that the the police officers, even though had that that superficial training, in the end harbored the same kinds of pre-judgment and the same kinds of anti-black dispositions against the residents as the military police. So Amarildo's death became a window through which we saw this experiment crumbling. So that's one aspect of the death of Amarildo in in the largest uh, favela in Rio, which is Rocinha. The other interesting aspect of the Amarildo moment is what happened after his death, which is how progressive groups congregated around Amarildo's family, around Amarildo's wife and his kids, 
And that was, in my perspective, a typical multiracial effort. And that multiracial effort, even though well-intentioned, even though trying to find who killed Amarildo and trying to get reparations from the state, ultimately they failed in grasping the fact that Amarildo met his fate, not so much because he was a resident of a favela, but because he was a black person who resided in a favela. So the multiracial block that was formed around Amarildo, in the same way that other multiracial blocks were formed around Claudia, that's another gruesome death that happened around that time of a, a few years, a couple of years later. Those multiracial blocks were unwilling and un- incapable of grasping the specificity of black experiences and ultimately were unable to engage the state apparatus, not so much from a perspective of reform, but really of radical transformation. You can't ask the police to act better, to have better training, because ultimately the police officers, like pretty much every citizen in Brazil, is already predisposed, is socialized against black people. But those multiracial formations were not able to grasp that and make that part of their political demands. So that's that's a long answer to your question. So the, the, <laughs> the case of Amarildo is interesting because of all these different these different components. So it's it's uh, it's about the the pacifying police, yes, but it's also about the multiracial alliances as they happen in Brazil and throughout the diaspora. Not unlike the multiracial alliances that take place in the U.S., including as as we speak. Yeah. Uh, and and you talk more about these uh, multiracial alliances in the last part of the, your book, and um, where that you dedicate a whole chapter to the life and work of Michael Zinzun, who you mentioned before, and that you clearly admire. Um, you call him a black cyborg. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? And um, what role do black cyborgs play in these multiracial alliances? Yeah, the the black cyborg was the term that I decided to use after witnessing Michael's political work, his personal struggles, and connecting that political work and struggles with that of other members of multiracial alliances and multiracial blocs. And I was trying to make sense of those dynamics when I reread Baldwin's 19, I think it's a 1963 essay called uh, When My Dungeon Shook, which he writes to his nephew, who's also called James. And he's basically telling his nephew that things are tough. These white people are crazy and they will kill you at the blink of an eye, but this is your country and you have no choice but make things work. You have to educate those crazy people who are ignorant. You have to love those crazy people who hate you. 
And you have to make it so that those crazy people will realize that the best hope in redeeming the democratic multiracial project lies in following your political platform. So when I read that in the context of Michael's lifelong work, and, and by that time he, he had passed, it dawned on me that the cyborg, which is this, the, the, this key political figure in multiracial blocks, is tasked with a superhuman mission. And that's why I call them a cyborg. That person needs to love in spite of all the hatred, needs to inform in spite of all the ignorance, needs to persevere in spite of all the violence that he or she or them will endure. That person needs to be superhuman, extrahuman. That person is something else. And that's why I call them the cyborg. It's, it's, it's somebody who's beyond human and who has to constantly guide and act in spite of the suffering, in spite of the dehumanization, in spite of the violence, in spite of everything that these political actors go through. So I, I describe a few of the, the horrors that Michael Zinzin went through his life, and he, including his political life. And that is quite common. The figure of the cyborg is not only common, but I would say is a requirement of these multiracial formations. And the cyborgs are effective while they are alive, and they are just as effective as posthumous uh, cyborgs after they, they die. So the memory of those cyborgs works just as effectively in galvanizing these multi racial blocks and I think we are going through that right now following the death of innumerable black people that themselves, they themselves become cyborgs that energize these multiracial political blocks. The problem with the, the cyborgs is not so much the cyborgs but the, the political blocks that they that they generate, the political block that they, they allow. And those political blocks, by definition, because they are multiracial, are ultimately unable and unwilling to deal with the specificity of black people's experience. So that's, I'm, I'm very, um, I was very optimistic about this wave of protest in the U.S., I participated in a few of them in a very kamikaze kind of fashion. <laughs> At the same time, I, 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 I held some skepticism because of the multiracial nature of them and how they also depend on the figure of this black cyborg, be it who it may. And so we, we will see. I, I really hope that I'm wrong. And I, I hope that there has been a shift between um, 
there has been a shift in the last five or six years so that this is not about all Black Lives Matter, but it's about Black Lives Matter truthfully. And if that's the case, then we will see how far these demands of abolition and transformation can go. So again, I hope I'm I'm wrong about the the centrality of the cyborg in these multiracial formations. I, I really do hope that we, we've reached an inflection point. And if that's the case, then what we are talking about is not really the cyborg, but is the figure of the slave, which is uh, the other part of the, the conversation, I guess. Oh, who is, what, what is the figure of the slave? The slave, right. So, so the slave, unlike the, the cyborg, the, the slave is not interested in reform. The slave is not interested in finding, in finding minimum common denominators between blacks and non-blacks. And the slave recognizes that in order for them to become non-slaves, this whole world needs to be destroyed and changed. So that's a very different political program, it's a very different political outlook compared to that of the cyborg. Um, well, I, I don't know if I wanted to quote you. Yeah, in, in a moment at the end, I think you say that the Black Star is not the solution because she's compelled, and here I'm quoted, to calibrate her demands to that of the third world which means that while graspable gains may indeed be had, an engagement of the anti-Black structure of positionality or Black objection, more simply, is left for a second moment at best. Um, so the, to summarize what you just said, is the, uh, I don't know how to put it, the, the suspicion that you have towards these multiracials multiracial alliances and, uh, and that need the black cyborg as a leader is that they ultimately fail to see anti-blackness as foundational and, and fail to see uh, they, they need to leverage their uh, demands. Absolutely. And, and you yeah. don't know if that's what's going on right now. Again, I hope I'm wrong. <laughs> I really do. Uh, but historically, that's what has happened, yes. Uh, I use Michael Zinzen example as proof of that. That's somebody who believed deeply in black knowledge, in, in black beauty, in black struggle. And yet, pragmatically, he found himself in multiracial blocks in which he had to bracket black specific demands the the most glaring one of them being the demand of uh, the the protest against anti-black genocide if michael zinzen were to protest against anti-black genocide i think that in his mind he would destabilize the multiracial block if not destroy the multiracial block. Because when you cry genocide, anti-black genocide, your demand is one of deep transfiguration. Society as we know it is just genocidal and we have to start over. And that will not work in a multiracial block. 
it will not work from the perspective of the cyborg who ultimately acts as if they believe in the project of national redemption. That's the other part of the cyborg is that the cyborg believes in the struggle as presently constituted as a way toward a redeemed multiracial democracy. The problem with with that perspective is that the redeemed multiracial democracy, if left as we understand those two concepts, require and perpetuate black death. So this is something that Joy James and many others have been talking about, which is the fact that modern democracies are fundamentally structured on black death. So if you are organizing for multiracial democracy in many ways, unwillingly, you are also organizing for black death. And that's one of the great contradictions of the cyborg's effort. The slave operates from the world of anti-blackness. It's not the world of racism. It's the world of anti-blackness. And in the world of anti-blackness, nothing short of complete transfiguration and reconstruction of institutions is the goal. So it's not about police reform, for example, just to, to stay with a one of the topics of the moment, but it's, it's about police abolition. I'm not interested about the police officers being better trained and using better equipment and having better protocols. In an anti-Black world, the police function is to kill Black people. So I'm, I'm not interested in the existence of the police and the police department, just to give you an example. So mm-hmm. the, from the slave perspective, it's a, it's a matter of abolishing the police, whereas from the perspective of the cyborg, it's about reforming the police. I know we're taking a lot of your time, but one, one more question. What kind of responses have you encountered when talking about foundational anti-blackness and the need uh, for a completely total reform and not just a redemption of the current system? Yeah, so keeping in mind that those are ideal types, I think we, for, for, the, for the model to work, we need to recognize that within the cyborg that sometimes the slave will manifest themselves and vice versa within the slave approach, sometimes the cyborg will, will be evident. But as far as political efforts that align more closely with the perspective of the slave, I would point to um, in Brazil, there were a few efforts uh, against voting. Voting in Brazil is required. So you have to, and if you don't vote, you you are liable in many different Mm -hmm. ways. And there were a few black-led movements that decided, and this is at the height of the Workers' Party administration, which is quite amazing if you think about it, And a few of these black groups uh, decided to start campaigns against voting. And so in that campaign, what I heard was the realization that 
not only the electoral game, but the whole political and economic system is rigged against and depends on the death of black people. That's one of them. There are several initiatives um, in Brazil that, of course, we don't hear of much, neither in Brazil nor here, but there are several initiatives of uh, community policing where black folks are taking matters in their own hands. They take care of policing in their community. They take care of, it's not even policing, that's the wrong word, security. It's, an, it's a different way of thinking about security and safety. Mm. And in the process, making their communities more autonomous, more self-managed. Um, those would be two. There are initiatives that focus on black schooling, both in the U.S. and in Brazil. I see that as a rejection of the state and private initiatives around education. And the realization is that education, as we presently conceive of it, is founded on anti-blackness. So it's up to us to come up with different initiatives. And there are other more complex economic initiatives um, structured around cooperative zones. We see some of this in Jackson, Mississippi. That's the most, um, most well-known case, but black cooperative zones like that one already exist in many places of Brazil, many places of the U.S., and I would say throughout the diaspora. So those initiatives would be closer to that of the, the slave, the, the, the political bloc that recognizes that this world just doesn't want us. This world hates us and this world is ready to kill us. Let's hope we see more of those initiatives then. Um, so, yeah, we're taking a lot of your time. Uh, does this collection of essays that you were talking about, uh, do you have a title for it already? It's called uh, Surprise, Surprise. It's called Anti-Blackness. <laughs> okay, and, it, and it, it, it when should, are you expecting to have it ready? It should be out uh, It should be out a beginning of uh, 2021. Okay, then looking forward to reading that book too. And thank you so much for speaking with us today. Uh, it was a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you for your great questions. Okay, bye. Bye.